to Amos chapter 5 and how to avoid the woodshed. Now, we don't have woodsheds everywhere, but up here we actually have some woodsheds. And back in the day, at least at the Gill Ranch in Poway, we had a legitimate woodshed. I mean, we had one of those woodsheds about 40 feet long. It was on the side of the hay barn, went from one end to the other. And if you got called to the woodshed, it was a bad deal. Okay, If you went there, you knew death was on the line. Basically, it was your life as you know it was about to end. It usually involved a belt or a switch. It was not a good place to go. So for those of you who never had that experience back when you could still... Uh, apply the rod of correction to the seat of knowledge on children. Back when you could still do that, uh, if you went to the woodshed, the woodshed is the place of discipline. So for those of you who don't know, you grew up in the modern era, you think the woodshed is something that's disappeared from the face of the earth. That's what I mean, the woodshed. So how to avoid the woodshed tonight? Last week, don't be obstinate. That is actually a really good way to avoid the woodshed. And so Amos now continues uh, in that vein. And as we begin, uh, there are several things we'll draw from the first part of this chapter that kind of gives us some instruction, keeps us in that place. Uh, you can grow from other people's mistakes. Amen? You can grow from other people's mistakes. Amen? Okay, you need to realize that. It's super important. When other people go through things and you have the opportunity to watch them from a second hand position in Jesus name do not make the same mistake it's fatal and in fact if you are so flawed in your thinking that you can watch someone go through a circumstance or a situation you understand that God doesn't like it and God does something about it and they go through some difficult times you're you're borderline silly if you continue in that behavior amen so that is the lesson here in chapter 5 and it's deep and it's pervasive. And so as we embark on this particular chapter, the, the, the message here, uh, frankly, it's a funeral dirge. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a dirge is, that is a very low-keyed song uh, that, that kind of makes you feel like you're already dead if you're not dead. Okay, it, it's, it's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Back in these times when Amos wrote all the way up really until about the Middle Ages, funeral songs were intended to convey mourning. When, when a funeral occurred, they were not like we have now where there's some celebration of life. They were death and nothing but death. So Amos is going to now kind of give this uh, funeral dirge, if you will, and I'm going to try and lighten it up. I realize that this book can be a bit tough at times to digest, but it is extremely beneficial for those of us living in this day and time to be able to say, you know what, hey, I know what not to do. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful congregation, God, for this church, for your people. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word, that Lord, we would actually find encouragement. God, in these things that are at times tough to hear, Lord, that it would strengthen us, Lord, as we do well. God, we pray that others would be able to say, uh, I, I know what to do, not just what not to do. And so, Lord, we give you this time and pray that you would bless us as we hear your word. Would we also have the strength to obey it? Send your spirit to speak. Anoint your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Verse 1 here in Amos 5. And you'll notice it right off the get-go. Hear God's Word. When you see the word here in Scripture, H-E-A-R, okay, it's not speaking about just using these things on the side of your head, is it? It, it needs to translate from being picked up by your auditory nerves inside of your eardrum and sent along its way as electrical impulses to that thing inside your cranium called your brain, it needs to go from there down to a little bit lower in your chest to a place called your heart, that center of your being, that place to where things become real to you. So when most of the time you see the word here, it implies a whole lot more than you just, well, I heard that. Because let's face it, we can hear and not do. Amen? Not only can we hear and not do, but we can actually hear it audibly and not hear it. Amen? Because there's a lot of things that I hear that I turn off. I don't really even want to hear it. I heard it. I heard what you said. You, you who have teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Their lips are going, things are flying around the room, you're like, huh? I heard it, but I didn't hear it. Hear this word, which I take up against you, a lamentation, a song of sorrow, a lamentation. O house of Israel, saying, look guys, you, you in the northern kingdom, this is a sad song. For those of you that like country music, you know, some of those, some of those songs is like, you listen to them and you just, your guts are wrenching by the time you get to the end of the song. You mean the, the wife's died, the husband's died, the kids have died, the dogs have died, nobody's coming back. This is like that. It's a song of lamentation. It's serious business. The virgin of Israel has fallen, and she will rise no more. That word that's translated there is actually maiden. In other words, the freshness, the youngness, the beauty of Israel. What was the nation in all of its glory and splendor? Uh, can I say to you that all brides are beautiful in their own way? Amen? But they're not all beautiful in, in that sense that we find natural beauty, appealing to the eye. But that's how God sees Israel. It's not talking about the physical beauty. It's just talking about, this is, my, this is my bride. This is my beloved. Beautiful. Arrayed in this garment of praise and of luxurious righteousness that I've heaped upon her. And I've given her all these glorious things. And she's supposed to be beautiful. But the beauty's gone. And she's still young. It's very sad. She'll rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. And you can get the, the word picture here is very clear. It's been left at the altar. Something happened. Not worthy of being married anymore. You get what's being said. Back in that day and time, when, when a bride was found to be unchaste, it was a death sentence 
you could be stoned for it. That's why it was so dangerous what happened with Mary. Had Joseph not stood up for her, she could have been killed. For just the mere implication that she might not have been a virgin. And God's saying, look, you're my bride and you're left dead in the field. Has no one to raise her up, no one to take her defense, no one to stand for her. For thus says the Lord God, you, you, you don't want God speaking about you, towards you, near you, in this way. You want to hear the word of the Lord. And he's going to fill in the blanks of all of this as we go along tonight. The city that goes by, out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. You realize what that's saying. That means 90% of them are dead. That's a tough deal. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten less left to the house of Israel. He's, he's saying, you've gone so far, and my wrath has been kindled so hot, and, and you have gone to a place that you shouldn't go. He's saying, hear the word of the Lord. This is going to cost you. And this is a frightening thought for us, were it not for grace. Okay, Let me just interject here for a moment. Don't forget, you're in the age of grace. And repentance is as close as you turning around, going the other direction and saying, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. Okay, It's that close. But in this day and time, it was not that simple. It wasn't that easy. Because when God had enough, God acted. We live in the age of grace. Now what's going to happen is over a cumulative 2,000 years, one day God is going to get to the end of the age of grace and there's going to be a whole group of people that are going to fall into this exact category. But between that start and when it ends, there's been this marvelous thing called the age of grace where God has said to as many as received and believed to them he would give the rights to become his children. Brought into his family, adopted, Given righteousness from Christ, put into your account, and your unrighteousness taken out and, and banished by the blood of Christ. Done away with. But at this point in time, he had given them very strict rules to live by. And the reason that this is so important to us is it comes to the character and to the nature of God. Because that character in nature, and you're going to see it spoken in very defined terms towards the end of tonight's study, has not changed. God still hates evil. God still is against wrongdoers. God still delights in righteousness, and He loves people who love Him. He loves all people, but he has a special love for people who love him. And he has special blessings for people who are obedient to him. You see, you may not lose your salvation, but you absolutely can lose your relationship to where you're outside of the blessings of God. And you place yourself, in essence, in harm's way. And... As I pondered this message, it's like, Lord, don't let me put myself in harm's way. I don't want to be in the woodshed. Because 
For those of us who have been around a while, because it is quite a bit less frequent now that children are actually paddled for their transgressions, but those of us who are a little older, we can remember the legitimate fear of punishment. That when you did something, you knew there was a consequence coming, and you also knew that you deserved what you were going to get. There was negotiation none that happened. You walked into that situation. Jeff, did you? Yes, I did, Dad. Go get the belt. That was the worst part. Go get the belt. It seemed like the other end of the house was a hundred miles away. And it was two hundred miles when you came back. And the belt looked like it was nine feet long and six inches wide. And it was in the arm of Atlas. You had that healthy sense that I did it, I deserve it, I'm going to get it. God had actually laid that down from the nation Israel. He said, I want you to love me the way I love you. I want you to walk in ways that are pleasing to me. I want you to be obedient. And if you do, the condition was, you would be blessed. But if you don't, beware of the woodshed. Now, just like all parents... God doesn't instantaneously mete out corporal punishment. Amen? He goes a long ways. Sometimes I believe, just like we earthly parents, God has a good chuckle over those transgressions because you know that children are being children. But can I say to you, the fourth, the fifth, the tenth time of the same transgression, the smile goes away. Amen? Same thing with God. He is our Heavenly Father. That first time, you might actually get a free pass. He may just go, you know, you're kind of being a knucklehead. You didn't know no better. And so I'm going to give you a free pass on this one. The second time, he might just say, well, you kind of got cajoled into that one. And you got a couple of bonehead friends so I'm going to give you a little nudge as to why you don't do that. And uh, that was the time you got pulled over with the empty containers in your car when you were 18. And Officer Rodman looked in there because he knew who you were. He said, I'm going to kind of avoid seeing those right now. But the next time, you're going to get to wear some iron bracelets. And then the next time you're going to go to prison. And then the next time you're going to go to prison for a longer, you get the picture. God works that way. He works incrementally in the way he punishes. So for him to get to this place, how bad do you think it was? How bad do you think it got for God to say, "Uh -uh. we're done. We need to hear the word of the Lord. You see what they were doing at that time, and we've already seen it in the first several chapters, is they were pretending to be righteous. 
And frankly, I don't know of anything that's a larger affront to God than those who are willingly transgressing his law to pretend to be righteous. We call it being pharisaical, or pharisaical, if you want it actually pronounced correctly. I like pharisaical because it sounds better. I don't know why, but it is actually pharisaical. It is that place that we say hypocrisy has crept in. You say one thing and do another. You're an actor. And that was the way it was. So Amos compares him to a virgin daughter in the bloom of her youth who is now ravaged and slain on the, on the field of battle. Well, you pretended like you were going to the wedding, but you put yourself in harm's way. You weren't going to the wedding at all. You were in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And so history fulfilled all of this, and we know so because you know a certain group of people that were hated by the Jews called the Samaritans, amen? The Samaritans came into existence from this period of time because God so obliterated, he allowed the Assyrians to do exactly what is mentioned here. There were a thousand, there were one hundred left. There were a hundred, and there were ten left. He allowed that to happen so much so that the Jews had no one to marry, so they married Gentiles. The combination of a Jew and a Gentile, specifically an Assyrian, produced a Samaritan. And so the Samaritans that would become the nemesis of the Jewish people were actually their own doing. Because they did not listen to the Lord, because they would not hear the word of the Lord, because they would not, remember what he said, do not marry foreigners. Keep yourself holy unto your God. And I know it sounds a bit racist today, but at that day and time, there were Jews, God's people, under God's law, specifically set aside for God, and there were Gentiles who were heathens. And those heathens worshipped other gods. And he said to them, you shall have no other gods before me. And so I want you to stay pure to who you are. And so because they didn't do that, and they married outside of their own people, everything in the world became okay with them. And you're going to see that. And we speak sometimes of the lost ten tribes. And when we do that, we're actually incorrect in speaking that way because they've never been lost. God knows where they are. And he will revive them again during the tribulation. There will literally be the twelve tribes again. So God knows where they are. But from a human perspective, you're going to be hard-pressed to go find the tribe of Dan and Asher. You're, you're going to be a, have a tough time to go hunt down some Benjamites. Because they've been dispersed exactly as this passage says. Very few Jews can trace their lineage back unless they are of the tribe of Judah or Levi. And that is exactly why you have so many Cohens. You know who that is? That's Levi. That's Levi. That's why you have so many Davids and David's sons. That's the tribe of Judah. But the Jewish people wouldn't listen. They kind of tested God. They said, you know what? Eh, we don't really believe you'll do that. Isn't it weird how Christians under grace do the same thing? Eh, we don't really believe you'll do that. We don't really mean you, you, you actually said that. You know, it's, it's like, what do you, eh, not 
that just doesn't fit the way we live. Can I remind you that this is the most politically incorrect book that probably exists on the face of the earth? This is the least existentially philosophical book on the face of the earth. It has absolutes. It has more than absolutes. It has divine absolutes. They're not just truths that are true. They're truths that came from God. It's not negotiable. People like to negotiate with what they like in God's word. The Jews did that. It cost them dearly. Pick up now in verse 4. Notice what he says. He's telling them, look, you guys, you need to seek me. He says, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. They stopped seeking God. They couldn't care less what God thought. They couldn't care less what God had said. They didn't heed heed his word. They did whatever they wanted. Is that not what's wrong with our world today? Oh, God, that is the number one problem that we face in our world today. It's wrong hearts doing the wrong things because that's what wrong hearts do. You're not seeking after God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Then you're going to go the world's way. And the further you go the world's way, the further you get from God. It's not hard to understand. Seek me. Notice what he says the result of seeking him is. And live. It's true for us. But do not seek Bethel, nor Gilgal, nor pass over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel. What he's saying is, is he says, these places that were formerly places of worship to the Jews had been overrun with pagan gods. And so instead of going to the house of the Lord, when they went to these places, they were actually going to a pagan temple. And so in each case, as he's telling, these, telling them these things, he says, you might, you might as well be going to Sodom. You might as well be going to some place that I have clearly cursed. Why don't we just go to Nineveh? Not a good thing. He's saying, don't go there. They're evil cities. Isaiah 55 says this in verse 6 and 7 ties directly into this passage. And in fact, when Isaiah wrote these words just a hundred or so years later, probably not quite that much, he said, Seek the Lord while He may be found, implying that there's going to be a time when you won't be able to find Him. Because there comes a point in time, and it's one of the dangers that we face right now in our world. People say, Well, I don't want to get politically involved. Family, you better believe you need to be politically involved. And I'm not talking about changing the pulpit into politics. But I'm simply saying, take your faith into public square. 
Because if you don't, pretty soon we won't be able to preach the Word of God. We won't be able to teach the Word of God. We won't be able to even invite someone to become a child of God. You surely will not be able to say, Thus says the Lord. And you absolutely will not be able to preach righteousness as the Word declares we should. That's what happened to the Jews. They said, We don't want any trouble. We want to be politically correct. We want to make sure that everybody likes us. We're going to do things the world's way. And they lost their ability to be able to be righteous in the public square because they had given up. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man, Isaiah 55 says, in his thoughts, let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. God will have mercy on him. And to our God, and for he will abundantly pardon. He says, it's the same way. If you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? But there comes a point in time when God just says, look, it's, you're not going that way. You're going the wrong way. Still true today. I don't know when it is. I am grateful for the grace of God. Amen? Mercy of God. Amen? For the righteousness of God. Amen? Don't trounce on it. That's what he's saying. He said, don't trample underneath, as Paul said, don't trample underneath the feet again, the Son of God. Do not crucify the Lord Jesus again. Don't make God nail him back to the cross when he's already done it once and for all. You see, they had done exactly as Psalm 1 says not to do. They walked in the counsel of the ungodly. They sat in the seat of the scornful. It's the wrong place for the body of Christ to be. And so he's making that contrast for us. And again, I realize that this is tough. But it's tough for a reason. It's tough because God loves us. Amen? God loves His people. He loves the world. He sent Jesus into the world to prove that, did He not? And so when He says these things, why do you think He says them? Because He wants to get out the big belt? Because He wants to make sure that you endured as much pain as possible? Of course not. Because He loves us. He says, I love you enough to tell you the truth. That's why Psalm 51 says, A broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. God loves broken hearts. He'd rather have you have a broken heart than a broken neck. It's pretty simple. When you tell your children, you know, hey, that's just a little out of your league. You know, for those of us that have snowboarding slash skiing children, the first time you watch your son go off of a 50-foot kicker, God, why are they like this? (laughs) Jeff, because you're just like that. Oh, yeah. You have to remember, you came out of the same stock, amen? 
You may not be doing the same things just the same way that other people are, but we all have the same basic inclination towards sin. There are things that are pretty attractive to us, and I'm not saying that skiing or snowboarding sin. But what I am saying is, is that you can carry almost anything too far to the point that it can be sin. And sin kills. That's what your Bible says. Why should we seek the Lord? He tells you here in verse 4, that you might have life. Amen? That's the reason you want to seek the Lord. Why, why do we want to do that? I want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. I want what He wants, and He wants me to have life. Amen? You've got to see this. Because, verse 5 says, it brings a spiritual blessing. People are going through the shrines. They're going in droves. They're going everywhere they're supposed to. You know what? A change of scenery doesn't bring about righteousness. Amen? It doesn't. Returning to the Lord brings about righteousness. I cannot tell you how many people have come and gone through the doors of this church because they hate my guts and they don't like what I said, whatever it was about God's Word, I said something to them and it afflicted them. And I can tell you about 99% of the time when I have known this to be true, I was absolutely correct in my interpretation of Scripture. And I said something in effect, you know, you really can't live with your boyfriend or your girlfriend before you're married and be sexually active because that's called fornication. God won't bless it. And they just... I'm going to go to a new church where they'll tell me fornication's okay. And they get to that church, and there's a new pastor and a new church and new elders. And about two months in, are you guys living together? You know that's sin, right? You can't do that. Off they go again. And they get to the next new place that's also going to tell them the truth. And they just go from place to place to place to place. They go from Bethel to Gilgal. And they keep going from church to church. And they go all the way to Beersheba. Now, let me tell you where this is. Because Bethel and Gilgal are in the north. They're in Israel. To go to Beersheba, you have to go through Jerusalem. You've got to go right past the temple. The only road at that time that went through there went right past the eastern gate to the temple. The only way to get to Beersheba. I go, oh, it's a temple. I'm going to go find somebody to tell me the fornication is okay. Somebody to tell me that drunkenness is okay. Somebody to tell me that all of my sin is okay with God. You're never going to find that. Not anyone that actually cares about your soul. But you will find some cults. And you'll find some people that aren't saved that will agree with you. And so he says, if you want blessing, you've got to do things my way. Got no choice if you want my blessing. A third thing. Uh, because judgment's coming. We don't like that part. Verse 6. You, you see, judgment begins in the house of God. It's coming. And whether that happens in our lifetime, or whether it happens when you take your last breath, or whether it happens at the rapture of the church, or during the tribulation, or at the second coming of God, or you make it all the way to the great white throne judgment. 
everybody that's ever exegeted the texts of Revelation were wrong, and actually everybody that's alive today is going to go straight to the great, great white throne judgment. And all of your works are going to be judged before God. I don't care when I get judged by God. I want to be judged in Jesus. Amen? You've got to walk in grace, and in order to walk in grace, you have to forsake your sin. So he says, judgment's coming. Don't think it's not. It is coming. Everyone, whether it's in righteousness at the Bema seat of Christ, one day we're going to stand before God and give an account for every even idle word we've ever said. Everything you've ever uttered from your lips. I don't know about you, as a pastor, scares me to death because I say some lame things every once in a while. I've made it, I've made it a habit to not listen to my own messages anymore because I get frightened. It's like, why did I say that? Fortunately, they're covered under the blood of Christ and the Lord knows exactly my heart and that I'm doing the best that I can with this human vessel and it's unintentional. But there are times it's like, well, I could have left that word out. Every idle word. It's all going to be judged. Whether for reward or to determine your place in the second death. It's all going to get judged. So, he goes on now and begins to kind of ramp up the speed a little bit. And so he says this third portion, how to avoid the woodshed, seek to do or seek good. You see, it's not enough to just forsake evil. We need to seek to do good. And again, not works-related doctrine. This is not, you got you don't do these things, man, you're just in trouble. That's not what it's about at all. But God's Word plainly declares from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, if you want the very best from God, you need to give the very best to God. It's that simple. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to have all of God's blessings for me. So if I want to walk in the center of His will, I don't want to stay on the fringes of His grace. Can I say that to you? I do not want to walk on the fringes of God's grace. I don't want to find out where the edge of grace, the canyon of grace. I like to think of grace as a plateau. And upon it is, is our King, our Lord, our Savior Christ, and we walk with Him on that plateau. For those of you that have ever been on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, the view from there is far better than the south rim, in my opinion. It's higher. You're looking out across the whole Coconino Plateau. It's amazing. You can walk for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, and the view changes. Every corner you go around, there's a different view of the Grand Canyon. And it is the rim from which you can normally see the fog coming up the Colorado River Valley. Amazing views. But I'll tell you what you don't want to do. You don't want to wander around in darkness on the north rim of the Grand Canyon because there ain't no facilities over there. It is wilderness. You walk around in the dark over there, you're going to plunge to your death. So I don't want to find out where the edge of the plateau of grace is by wandering around in darkness. I want to wander in the light as He is in the light. 
For those that love Him, love the light. Those who love darkness, do not love Him, your Bible says. Read John's Gospel. Walk in the light as He is in the light. For He cannot deny Himself. Verse 7. Seek the good. You who turn justice into wormwood. You who turn the justice of God into the workings of Satan. Youch. I think they ought to put that in the doors of the Supreme Court. Take a pick. Justice of God or the works of Satan. That's what wormwood is. Lay righteousness to rest in the earth. You've buried righteousness is what he's saying. You're going to see these things unfold here in just a moment. He takes a little interlude in verses 8 and 9, and it's there for a very specific purpose. Because up to this point, you have the character of God being very clearly displayed in contrast to the unrighteousness of man. And now, just to make sure that everybody gets it, he says, Oh yeah, and by the way, I created you and the universe. So I do know what I'm talking about. If you pick up the owner's manual, you'll see on the back there in the little box at the bottom, it says, made by God. Instead of made in China. Go USA. Oh, sorry. Still Olympics week. For he made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into mourning and makes the day dark as night and he calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth the Lord is his name and he rains ruin upon the strong and so that fury comes upon the fortress you get the picture he said just so you don't get confused here let me tell you who I am who made up these rules that you may not like when you look up in the night sky and you see Pleiades, now Pleiades are the seven daughters, the, the seven sisters, if you will, and they're the daughters specifically of the Greek god Titan. And, and so in Greek mythology, these were kind of the concubines uh, of Artemis. And so to the Greeks, they're looking up there, wow, you know, look what Titan did. Kind of flung his sisters up there in the stars. Mentions Orion, the giant huntsman, placed up into the sky by Zeus himself. You see what God was saying is, <laughs> those stars, um, not Pleiades, not Orion, got nothing to do with the zodiac. Your horoscope doesn't hang on them. Jesus Christ, the Creator God, hung them in the heavens. He's making a contrast. And he says, I take care of all that stuff. The nonsense that you say, notice how he, he uses the light and the darkness. You see, the Greeks believed that there was literally a god named Hades, who was the god of the abode of the dead. There was a river Styx that separated. And when you got to the edge of the shore of the river Styx, you would give coins to the boatman. The boatman would take you across the river Styx, and you would engage with Hades, the god of the dead, the underworld. And he's saying, that's pretty lame. Actually, I make the light and the darkness. 
So if it's here, or if it's there, I did it. Verse 10, For they hate the one who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. You see, at that day and time, you could be tried at the gate of the city. That was the most common place for things to be determined. If you had a disagreement with someone in your neighborhood, you didn't go get Judge Judy. You didn't go to small claims court. You went to the gate of the city, and you got a couple of reliable witnesses, and the matter was settled right there. It was a very simple form of justice. It worked, and people didn't carry grudges for a long period of time, because if you did, you got stoned. And I'm not talking about Colorado stoned. I'm talking about rocks made out of rock stoned. He says, you guys talk badly about that. You rebuke the people who stand in the gate. And therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him. Can you imagine this? This this would be like, and this is kind of what it is, you go down to downtown L.A., you're there on Skid Row, you're in the middle of this place where there's just hundreds and thousands of people who have destitute need, and you're over there, and oh, by the way, you got I need a tax for that hunk of sidewalk you're living on. You know, the assessor's out there. Oh, he's got eight square feet, mark that down. Charge him. Take three bottles from him, do something. It's crazy. It's nuts. That's what they were doing, though. They would go and glean through the fields. The poor could go into the fields and glean. And gleaning was taking the leftover things from the field, be it corn or grain or some type of produce is in the field, the grapes that were less than desirable. And it would be like the guy's gone out of his way to go and get like three pieces of grain from here and two from over there. And oh, by the way, you've got to give us some of that. That type of justice. God hates it. And though you've built houses of hewn stone, hewn stone was very, very, very expensive. They built largely with unhewn stone at that time, so much so that the book of Deuteronomy said, you be careful lest you take an iron tool to the stone of the Lord. He says, don't you carve me into your character. He said it was so appalling to the Lord that man would try and change the character of what God had done that he even built it into the building codes. He said, don't do such things. And yet you shall not dwell in them. You have houses you don't even live in. You planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting from the poor and from the justice at the gate. And therefore the prudent keep silent at that time. The people actually have some brains. We're saying nothing. Hello? God to earth. I hate it when you are unjust to people. I can't stand it when righteous people do nothing. Speak up. Stop being silent. Many of the problems that we face today is because the church has been silent. Not because governors, not because congressmen, not because senators and legislators have been idiots, though that is true. It is because the church no longer speaks of righteousness in the courts. No longer speaks of righteousness at the gate of the city. No longer speaks in the state house and the White House. We don't speak to diddly. Well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. Don't want anybody to think that, you know, I might have an opinion. God's got some opinions, okay? They're supposed to be our opinions. That's why he started with the word, by the way. 
For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil. Is that plain enough for you? Duh. Kind of hard to figure that one out, is it? You know, sometimes you wonder when people read the Bible, what do they think? Seek good, not evil. Well, what is good, really? The moment you even question that, you're on the wrong side. That you may live, notice what he says again, so the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good. Duh. In case you didn't get it the first time, says it a different way a second time. And he uses stronger terminology. Hate and love, that's stronger than seeking. And kind of not being, isn't it? You see how he's ramping it up? He's saying, guys, I don't want you to miss this. The people of God are to love good and hate evil. Period. Not kind of, well, I like this evil. It's not an option for us. We're to hate evil. This is a difficult challenge. And so he begins here to just simply name some sins, and I think they're pretty clear to us. And as you look at them, ask yourself a few things. Is the world promoting injustice? Is the world promoting injustice? Oh, you better believe it is. And probably at the forefront of that is our own country. I don't know if there's a country on earth that promotes more injustice than the United States of America. Now, it's kind of done slyly, but we promote injustice. Why? Because we have the power to stop it, and we don't use it. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin, your Bible says. It's sin. God established human government. It's supposed to be, uh, you'll see it at the end, a a never-failing stream is what justice is supposed to be. Made promises, it says in Hosea chapter 10, and they do not keep them in false oaths. We've already seen that. The Lord hates it. Laws that disagree with God and God's people go along with them. Oh my. Promoting injustice? How do you think God feels about those 51 million babies that are in heaven right now because they were taken from their mother's womb? Pretty strong injustice, isn't it? Largely, almost exclusively because of another sin, fornication. Those babies were unwanted because there was no marriage relationship. There was no commitment. Healthy families do not abort their children. We're supposed to be the salt of the earth, and salt prevents rot. They rejected the rebuke. Notice this in verses 10 and 13. It's not a good thing to become a know-it-all, is it? (laughs) Unless the know-it-all is you know it all as in you know the entire Bible and you do exactly what it says. But to take a rebuke that is rightly earned and to reject it sets you up for some serious 
serious punishment. And that's what they were doing. The city gate was a place where the elders meet. They transacted the business and dishonest leaders got in there and someone would come and rebuke them. And, hey, you can't do that. You've put extra weights on the scales. You've done these dishonest things. And people would stick up for the people who were wrong. You get the point? We need to stop sticking up for people who are wrong. And we need to simply call sins in. Just say it like it is. That's what God wants. Stop rejecting. Stop speaking to people who are trying to do the work of someone who righteously, with as much love as is possible, is in that place of having a righteous rebuke. It's like, look, stop it. I have no problem naming sins. I want to do that as much love as I can, but there are Christians who come against folks like me who actually speak the truth, and they go, well, you you shouldn't say that because it offends people. Would you rather offend them or have them go to hell? Take your choice. That's what I say to Christians. Do you want to have God's blessing or would you rather have His curse? Do you want to die or do you want to live? What, what am I doing wrong? Now again, that rebuke should be as kind as it can be. But if the rebuke is earned, rebuke them. Tell them it's wrong. Speak the truth in love. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke the wise man, and he'll love you. When you rebuke a wise person, they'll say, Thank you for catching me in my folly. But an idiot, not so much. So when you are acting on God's Word and speaking the truth to somebody about the things that they're engaged in, and it's contrary to God's Word, they are a fool if they rebuke you. They say to you, oh, I'm not going to do that, when this is the standard. This, that's the key. Remember, it started with the Word. You pick up your Bible and go, look, it's just what the Bible says. You've got to live that way. You name the name of Christ, oppressing the poor. Amos was a champion of the poor and the oppressed. And he said, it is an injustice in our land for us to have so many poor people and for us to have the ability to do something about it and to do nothing. It's wrong. We have, to, we have to defend the defenseless. We must. We don't have any choice. We have to help the poor. We have no choice. It's not an option for the body of Christ. It was not an option for the Jewish people. In fact, they actually had a poor tax. Part of the temple tax went directly to take care of the poor and the indigent. It's our model. Instead, people were building homes for themselves, planting luxurious gardens, doing everything they could, and they had vineyards that could produce wine that could be given to poor people, and they just let it rot and fall on the ground because they didn't want to do anything for the poor. God help us. I saw it today. Mark Zuckerberg sold, bought some part of something for $16 billion. I thought millions were bad. Now, what part of anything on the Internet could be worth $16 billion? Do you have any idea how many people $16 billion could feed? And I can name a whole bunch of the Internet that could go away and you'd never know it, and you could give the billions to feed the poor. If we can afford that garbage, we ought to be able to afford food for the poor. 
They were elegant, arrogant, yeah, well, elegant too. Elegant in their self-confidence or arrogant, whichever you prefer, both fit actually. I am elegant in my self-confidence. They were boasting the Lord God is with us. He wasn't with them. He was about as far away as he could get. He hates sin. He hates injustice. God's like on the other side of the earth from them, and he's going, oh, God's right here. Look at our church. And that's exactly what they would do. They would go point at the building. As empty as can be, no life in it, no spirit of God anywhere near it, but we got a beautiful building. Awesome. Nobody ever gets, uh, you know, gets challenged there. We don't offend anybody. The guys that gave the money, they don't want to hear about sin. So we don't talk about it. How can we claim to love good if we don't hate evil, folks? It's arrogant. It really is. It's arrogant. To stand before God and say, look, we're going to make our own rules. And it's very self-confidence. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, You who love the Lord hate Evil. It doesn't say, you who love the Lord, make up your own rules. It says, hate evil. If it's evil, according to God, it's evil to you, period. It's evil to me. And so to wrap this passage up, and I believe we can do it. There are a few verses left, but we can do it quickly. Therefore, the Lord of hosts, the Lord says... There shall be wailing in the streets. They shall be all in the highways. Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning, the skillful, skillful lamenters to wailing. In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. You realize what he's saying? He's saying, you want to bring woe on yourself? You want to have a reason to cry? You're not even going to have enough professional mourners to do it. You're going to go need to go get the farmers to do that. Because you're all going to be dead from your sin. Pretty strong. And notice what he says. For I will pass through you. He's going to do it himself. He says, I can't find any righteous judges. There's no righteous people. The church won't stand up, in essence. So I'm going to come and do it myself. And if I've got to use Assyrians, I'll use Assyrians. If I have to use famine, I'll use famine. If I have to use blazing sun, I'll use blazing sun. But you're going to get the message. Whoa. And that's not like, whoa. That's like, whoa. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You see, they were actually crying out for God's justice and judgment. Isn't that crazy how so many people can have a false sense of righteousness and they're crying out, oh, Lord. Just deal with them. You know, you've probably heard that person that you know is directly in rebellion to God and they're calling down fire on somebody else. There are some pastors that do that. Their lives are a mess. And they're over there aiming the lightning bolts of heaven down on somebody else's head. Woe for you who desire that. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? You get the picture here? The day of the Lord is thrilling, exciting, wonderful, and glorious if you're one of His kids. But if you're outside of His blessings, you ought to be scared out of your mind about the coming of the day of the Lord. 
You ought to be so frightened you wake up every day repenting. It's like, God, don't come today. I still haven't repented. I'm still doing exactly what you told me not to do. Don't come today. What are you saying? It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. <laughs> Not a great metaphor. What a picture. Guy's booking it from a lion. Lions are pretty fast. And he goes around the corner and there's a grizzly bear. It's like, oh no. Talk about a hopeless situation because if he turns around, guess who's right behind him? The lion. If he keeps going, what's in front of him? The bear. You ain't getting away from the justice of God. Or as though he went through a house and leaned on his hand on a wall and a serpent bit him. In that day and time, because they used unhewn stones, every stone wall had pockets in it. They usually stored their valuables and stuff in those. Their pots and pans went not in cupboards and holes in the wall, but they were also open to the outside, and so that's where the serpents went to get out of the noonday sun into your own wall. And you were so unfortunate as to find the one hole in your house, the one wall that had the snake in it. Why? Because when your heart's not right, those things have a way of finding you out. Scripture says that eventually your sin will be shattered from the rooftop. Your sin will find you out, period. You can't fool God, and ultimately you won't even fool people. You just think you will. It's not the, <clears throat> is it not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? You see the, the picture, the contrast? <laughs> the day of the Lord is not going to be a fun time. It's going to be a time of darkness, not of the light of the Lord. The light of the Lord is going to be the very weapon that destroys those who are in darkness. Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days. You see, you guys have turned church into an abomination. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. You guys get together and all these things, you hold the feast days, you're there at the Feast of Trumpets, and the, you get done at the Feast of Trumpets, and you're out doing exactly what I told you not to do. Don't mess with me. And though you offer me a burnt offering and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor regard your fattened peace offerings. He says, you throw an extra couple of grain sheaves in there, and I don't even see them. Because I'm not worried about your... I own all your grain already. That's not why you do that. You do that because you're right with me, not to get right with me. You get the difference? Everything we do, we do from grace, not for grace. Amen? I give to the Lord, I serve the Lord, all those things I do because I'm already one of His kids, and I do it because it's an act of worship, not to gain His favor. You can't buy God off. An extra five times in church in one month is not going to wipe away your sin. Getting on your knees before a holy God and saying, I am sorry, God, I should have never done that, and mean it with your heart, gets your sin erased. Okay? Not extra money. Not extra service. Not extra church. Not taking somebody to the airport. Crazy how many people try and buy God off. Same thing that Cain went through, amen? Remember the story. Let's make a nicer offering. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. He says, guys, I don't care how many worship services you have. What I care about is real justice. 
Let it run down like water. Let righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years ago, or for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried the sikuth of your king and the shiun of your idols. He says, you carried around the false gods while you were going to church. Yikes. The star of your gods which you made for yourselves. He said, I'm the eternal one that flung the stars into space, and you're carrying around these little stupid idols. He's mocking them, actually. You look at the original Hebrew here. This is the stone-on rebuke that contains a sarcastic mocking. You guys are idiots. You think I didn't see behind your tents those gods that you carved for yourself? You put them when you were going to church because someone came over to get you in your tent. You took your idol out of your house. You hid your Playboy magazine and you deleted your search engine history. And then you went to church, and then you came back, and you got wherever you hid it, you dug it back out, and you went right back, because you remember the address of that website. You get the picture? You told me you were going to forsake that sin, but instead of forsaking that sin, you went and asked Pastor Jeff to pray for you about your sin and try and sanctify your sin. Don't sanctify your sin, because it can't be done. Don't ask me to pray for your sin. You're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Forsake the relationship. Get right with God. And then go to the house of the Lord. Don't hide it. Don't pretend it isn't there. And do not marginalize it. Because it will come to bite you. It's a day of despair. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of darkness. It's a day of doom, and it is all brought on themselves. None of it was because God didn't like them. None of it was because God didn't give them a way out. None of it was because they didn't know better. None of it was because they were too tempted. None of it was because the culture made it impossible to resist. None of it was the lies that we still hear to this day. I have a genetic disposition to sin. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. I have a genetic disposition to sin. I can't help myself. Look through the list of things that you can find doing an internet search that are a addiction. You're going to find shopping. Shopping. There's the shopping. I have the shopping gene. Oh boy. Wasn't true then, isn't true now. We've been created in the image of God, fully able to walk with Him. And if you want to stay out of the woodshed, the best place to start with His Word best place to end is with obedience. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the strength of it. Lord, thank, thank You for these powerful passages. We admit, God, they're, uh, they're, they're a little tough, Lord. They're like trying to eat cocoa powder on a hot day. 
Uh, but God, we need it. And we need to have the truth in us so that we can walk in your ways. And so, Lord, strengthen us with it. Encourage us with it. Help us to walk in your ways, Lord, to receive that eternal life. Lord, not just the life that's eternal, but the abundant life that comes with it now. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you, God, for your grace that's able, Lord, to deliver us. Keep us at that glory spout wherein your blessings flow. Lord, help us, as Jude says, Lord, to be right there where you can put your hand on us and just lavish us with praise as we do you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We bless you. Thanks for loving us, Lord. As imperfect as we are, God, would you please help us to just do better, Lord, as we wake up tomorrow. We bless you. Help us to love you like you love us. We ask it in your name, Jesus.